welcome to the Legolas podcast. The end of old eras and beginning of new ones. It seems that it isn't just Parliament that works in fixed five-year terms. Party leaders and editors also appear to work on a 2010 to 2015 stretch. What a fortnight it has been. In our first episode since the election, myself, Peter Pope, and my colleague, my good fellow, will discuss as much as the fallout from May 7th as we possibly can, including Ed Miliband's legacy and the emerging leadership contests. Uh, Ed Miliband resigned the morning after Labour's election defeat after five years as the party's leader. It's widely agreed that to move on we need to understand the successes and failures of his tenure. So, first things first, Maya. What Ed Miliband successes do you think Labour and its next leader can build on? Well, I think one of the interesting things about the last couple of weeks of the election campaign was um, what we saw in Ed Miliband's interview with Russell Brand, which was this idea that politics isn't just about leaders, it isn't just about the MPs, it's about people, and trying to make people feel like they have power too. And this idea that, um, you know, people a lot of people feel disenfranchised from politics. And obviously not all of Labour's policies necessarily spoke to that, and maybe Miliband came to that a little too late, and there were other problems with his leadership. But I think that was a really interesting point, and I think that's something that the next leader should be able to build on um, in terms of, you know, trying to reach out to people in Scotland, but also disenfranchised voters who went to UKIP. And that's uh, a point that shouldn't be lost, I think, in this kind of post-election discussion. It certainly felt that quite early on in his leadership, he had this idea of the disenfranchised voter and wanted to concentrate on that, but never seemed to really work out what to offer them or how you approach it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think um, just in terms of the policy offer... You know, we all differ within the Labour Party about what what we think, what direction it should have gone in, but it didn't. It it just wasn't enough in in my view. And like issues like housing and not so popular with the electorate, but important unfortunately for the future, climate change, which I know lots of people will groan <laughs> as I mention that. But but you know these are these are big issues, and Miliband did talk about them, but perhaps not in the right way. In on in, in terms of climate change, I think he was right and. The party should stand by that, and I think they will. But in terms of housing, the Tories aren't going to build any houses. At least Labour were offering that, but perhaps that wasn't enough <laughs> for the electorate. Maybe that didn't come through enough as well. Um, but, you know, I think those those two big policy areas should should continue to be um, spoken about, whoever the next leader is. It's quite interesting, actually, because he was um, quite widely hailed as an excellent environment secretary under the last Labour government. Um, but it wasn't particularly at the forefront of his offer. And obviously you can understand that because it isn't a particularly mm. vote-winning area. However, it might have turned out to have helped somewhat in stopping the Greens quadrupling their vote share. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's something that um, Polly Toynbee said at our, um, when we had our pre-election conference. She said that it is something that they should have been talking about more. And I agree that the, what they were saying on climate change wasn't wrong, but we weren't hearing it enough, and potentially there was more they could say. But Miliband came to that, you know, I, like you say, after kind of talking about that um, initially as um, Minister for Energy and Climate Change, just then came to that a bit too late. For my money, I think the legacy that will have the biggest effect on the Labour Party is actually his internal party reforms, mm. which obviously is quite dull and won't have won really any votes at all, but actually he's going to have a really profound uh, change on the way that we elect the leader this time and we're speaking on Monday here this morning Harriet Homan made a speech about opening up 
the leadership contest to people outside of just members and even really supporters and actually talking to members of the public in places where we wanted to win mm-hmm. but didn't win. And I think that's actually a really important culture shift in the party that will be very useful in moving forwards and I think in future might be an electorally a positive change in the way that we run the, the party. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that particularly. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I do agree. And I think that um, people will look back on this and say that that was a big plus for Miliband is that he's trying to, he was trying to open up politics and it does come back again to that issue of trying to engage people and it didn't quite work <laughs> in 2015 <laughs> but who knows beyond um, what that means for the Labour Party and people feeling like they can become involved um, but in terms of what Miliband got wrong or what Labour got wrong throughout that five years um, I don't think it'll surprise many people to hear me say that immigration was there for me their big big fail- failure and you know, I do worry about the future of the party on this topic because seeing UKIP do so well, there will be no doubt some kind of um, feeling within the party that Labour should go harder on immigration. That didn't work for us in 2015. It really didn't. You know, even in some of the northern seats, you saw UKIP doing very well. Labour held them, but UKIP, UKIP surge should not be discounted there. And how you combat that... Um, in the coming years, I don't think is a shift to the right on immigration, but... Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I do agree that immigration, uh, the way that we... Certainly the way that we talked about it was, was a really big failure because partly because people simply didn't believe mm. the rhetoric on immigration, I think. I mean, I, I agree with you that I don't particularly want to see uh, much tighter controls immigration. Mm. It's not something that I want to see us doing. But you could see how that could be something that does appeal to a lot of people. But when they talk about controls and immigration, and, and we know kind of what that means, but as a phrase in itself, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Controls and immigration is it's just a basic tenet of what governance does. Um, so to carve it into a rock as though it means anything and kind of doing it in a wink-wink, nudge-nudge way, <laughs> whilst actually no one believes that you're going to do anything yeah. about it because we are in support of being a member of the European Union, which obviously is going to be a big thing throughout this parliament when the EU referendum comes up, and changing the free movement, I don't think it's going to be Mm. a reform that anyone even tries to pass. And so what we were talking about is reforming the benefit system to the way that we treat immigrants, which... Is complete, which is in fact completely different to the immigration yeah. debate, really. Yeah, and I think just to, like one final point on that is all anyone really heard was Labour agrees that immigration is a problem. We can't trust them to deal with it, so I'm going to vote UKIP, and that's something the party really need to address. And like you say, this idea of, of um, people from abroad claiming benefits, this whole health tourism thing, is just it's just it's so so little um, basis in reality that they really need to figure out their line on that and make sure that it's robust and that people are going to believe them and that it's not pandering to this kind of anti-immigration sentiment. On a, on a similar note, one of the biggest failures from my point of view was um, how we approached the EU referendum and not necessarily saying that if we'd supported an EU referendum then everything would have been fine because obviously that's not true. But I think in some ways it was talismanic of the way that Labour would approach lots of issues and how I think a lot of people see the EU as being a kind of big vested interest and 
it looked like we weren't prepared to listen to uh, people's views on that if we thought it was a vested interest that was okay. Um, and I think that became actually, you know, quite a big problem. And we see it now with already Andy Burnham and Liz Kendall, two of the leadership conte uh, contenders, have said that they now support mm. an EU referendum. Well, I think, you know, in the end, maybe we should have been thinking about this a couple of years ago. I think we could have beaten Cameron to promising one. I mean, after he pledged one, it was a bit here and there. But the idea that our entire foreign policy and our entire business policy boiled down to this one mm. one single policy, which mm. was no EU referendum, was a bit of a failure. I think that fed in as well to a kind of bunker mentality around um, the top of the Labour Party that that emerged over a few years where they did feel like every, it was kind of them against the world at a lot of points and you could see it in the way that they approached media and I hope that whoever's next mm -hmm. uh, leader of the Labour Party takes a bit more of a relaxed view about these kind of things and is willing to perhaps talk to media that they don't always get on with. And so and on that topic what do you make of uh, the leadership timetable now that we have we have that. And so originally, I thought that a shorter contest would be better mm -hmm. because I believed that the one that we had in 2010 was too long. And I find that the argument that it put us on the back foot very early on quite convincing. And then, and during that period, that the Conservatives were able to basically set the agenda yep. for the five years of Parliament. And we were all, always playing catch up, and particularly on stuff like. Uh, pre-crash spending which is now coming back again after not having been talked about for years pretty much up until the election campaign now seems to be the biggest mm -hmm. issue mm -hmm. of this uh, contest so at first I was skeptical about a long contest but actually I think now we are looking at a much bigger challenge than we were in 2010 and from that we need to have a proper debate and I think it does need to be really quite honest about what we think went wrong and what we think went right. Um, and people can have differences of opinion and they don't have to be particularly friendly differences mm -hmm. of opinion all the time. But I think that needs to happen. And for that, I think maybe a four month timetable is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say before it happens, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. But, but I also was and still am in some ways quite sceptical of this. I think it's important that, you know, the affiliate members can sign up and then we can have this more of an open contest. Um, but my worry with the Labour Party is there will be a lot of navel-gazing. Mm. And yes, it's important to assess what went wrong. That is very important. And it's also important that we hear all those voices because there is a worry that, you know, voices from the left will also get crowded out of that. But... <laughs> It does give the Tories another four months to kind of uh, do whatever the hell they want. And we need to make sure that Labour are still challenging what is going on, albeit without, a, you know, with, with an interim leader, Harriet Harman, who I'm sure will do a great job. Um, but, you know, letting them kind of get away with whatever they're going to get away with in the next four months is a bit of a worry of mine. Do you think that Labour can be an effective opposition within this period? Because obviously they can't set out a coherent narrative to what would be different, but can they still do that? Really? Um, 
I think to a degree, yes. Like how effectively they can do that, as I say, with with an interim leader. And you know, the response will always be, "Yeah, well, you don't have a, mm. a, a leadership team yet, so how, how can you really say that?" But um, yeah, I think I think they they have to at least begin challenging the Tories in some way. Otherwise, there is a risk that that kind of narrative forms once again. Obviously, we aren't facing the same kind of um, crisis that we were back in 2010 but nonetheless there is the strength that the Tories have that they are you know they have the public listening to them and so what do you make of the leadership contest so far what do you think of the field that people have declared we've um, got Andy Burnham we've got Yvette Cooper we've got Mary Cray we've got uh, Liz Kendall is the other one um yeah I mean I think it's great that there are um three women I'm all for that I, I think it's a real shame that Chuka Amuna had to, you know, was forced out of it. And I do think it is a shame that at the moment it is an all-white contest. I would quite like to see um, a minority ethnic candidate in there. Um, and my also, my other worry is that there isn't uh, a candidate you traditionally say is on the left of the party. Andy Burnham, yes, will no doubt get the unions, was getting the unions backing, but he isn't what I would describe as the traditional left candidate that maybe we saw in Diane Abbott in 2010 um whether that will change <laughs> um i mean i don't think it will but you know we'll 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 see i think it's quite interesting because i would suspect that there are 35 mps who would nominate a traditionally left candidate mm-hmm. but uh would think that the trade unions who we presume are mostly going to back yeah. andy burnham yeah. obviously we don't know yet yeah. um will look to put their weight behind someone who they think has a better chance mm. of winning. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's quite interesting. But people like John McDonnell and John Trickett have been calling for there to be um, a more hard-left candidate, but both of them have ruled out doing it themselves, yeah. which is quite interesting. Yeah, and I mean, we will see whether, you know, Tristram Hunt, not that I'm suggesting that he would be the <laughs> candidate for that, but, but he might. Um, there's also some kind of... Um, uh, call on social media for Lisa Nandy <laughs> to, to to put her name in the ring. I, I don't know whether she will do that. I, I doubt it, but um, we'll, we will see. There's still time left. I, I attended the first not hustings of the leadership candidates plus the far left Tristram Hunt um, <laughs> on Saturday at Progress Conference, um, which actually was a bit of a damp affair in in some respects i was really looking forward to it in fact mm-hmm. um the uh host of it the moderator um kind of sensed that people were very excited for it and it was a packed out room there was hundreds of people there and asked the audience whether they wanted um the the panel debate to go on longer than it had been scheduled for for which there was a great cheer <laughs> and about halfway through Jim Murphy resigned as leader of the yeah. Scottish Labour Party so both myself and Mark Ferguson had to quickly dash from the uh, building to find a nearby cafe with wi-fi that was up to scratch um but uh, yeah no I thought that obviously it's a very early contest none of them have the 35 nominations needed to ensure that they're on the ballot paper yet it was the first time that they were going up kind of against mm. each other as it were and so there was a sense of shadow boxing going on where they were you know having maybe little jibes at each other but that were not particularly focused they were 
suggesting things that they knew the other candidates would take as jibes, but that other people there probably wouldn't. And they were kind of testing their strategy lines as well, I think. Andy Burnham was saying that, you know, the three things that we mm. didn't have credibility on was the economy, immigration and business. And he repeated that those three things again on the Andrew Marr show mm-hmm. the next morning. So it was more of them working out what works in a big room, whether whether they're popular, how they can interact with Labour Party supporters than anything of real substance going on there. They all seem to still be arguing for slightly different bits of what was featured in the 2015 Labour Manifesto. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we'll see them breaking out into their own personal moulds a bit. I think that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. Uh, And regular listeners may have noticed that there was no Mark Ferguson today. After five years of gratuitous hard work for the site, he has now moved on to new challenges. Uh, I would recommend visiting labourlist.org to read his farewell message to readers. And as we know, he'll be listening. Myself and Maya would like to deliver a public message of thanks for his insights, his faith, and his incredible work ethic. We both feel very lucky for having worked with someone so immeasurably talented. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Labourlist podcast. You can find every episode at labourlist.org forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Ragtime Dance by Scott Joplin, licensed under Creative Commons.